Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. I'm Rosie Dawson and this is the podcast which aims to shine a light on the ways in which religion can be used to support or to challenge sexual violence. And today I'm with... Karen O'Donnell. I'm a feminist theologian working primarily in the area of trauma. Now it's mid-December, we've got Christmas on our minds and some people might think it's stretching a bit and, and also rather insensitive to have a conversation about Mary in a podcast about rape culture, religion and the Bible. So why have you agreed to one? Uh, Well, Rosie, I'm always happy to have a chat with you, but also there are a whole range of rape narratives that surround the story of Jesus's conception, both in the Bible and in scholarship that surrounds the Bible and also in kind of secondary literature from various different traditions uh, through the medieval period and all the way up to today. So I think it's really appropriate to be talking about Mary in the context of rape culture and and, and violence in the Bible because plenty of people do. And not just because of the sort of historical conversations that have been had? No, not at all. There's plenty of contemporary conversations in the 20th and 21st century, various different scholars putting forward different ideas about Mary Uh, that intersect with different rape narratives. It's an important conversation for us to have. Okay, so before we get on to that, let's just um, talk a little bit about you and your scholarship. You've become something of a leading voice in the field of trauma theology. What is trauma theology and how, how recent is it? Well, it's always a really good question. I draw a distinction between trauma and suffering because, of course, suffering has been an issue that Christians have been thinking about since since the beginning of theology. So, you know, right back to Irenaeus, even in biblical texts as well. Uh, so thinking about suffering from a theological perspective isn't new. Trauma itself is a, a medical diagnosis and, and it's a medical diagnosis that doesn't become formalised and uh, codified really until the 1980s. So I think it's difficult for us to talk about trauma theology before the 1980s at least and in reality trauma theology gets its impetus in the post 9-11 context where we find a group of American scholars in particular who start to think about what it might mean to take trauma seriously as a starting point for doing theology and to take the traumatized body seriously um, that that the way in which trauma impacts on the individual um, and on then the individual's relationship to those around them in their societies, their communities, is significant and profound and causes real damage and real distinction in the way in which people function and the way in which people think. So I think about trauma theology as a theology that takes the traumatised body as its starting point for a whole range of different discourses around domestic violence, around rape, around the experiences of people in war zones and uh, trauma theology really since then so the last 20 years or so has been working out what theology looks like and how theology can do justice to these experiences. I think for me what it's revealed is that um, a lot of doctrine takes no account of the specificities of people's experience and I'm never interested in those abstract concepts I always want to think about well what does this mean how does this how does this help people how does how do we put this into practice and trauma has to be understood does it not as a, as a sort of bodily experience i mean one of the um the earliest trauma theorists 
says something like, you know, the body keeps the score. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk, himself now, sadly, a problematic figure in that he has recently been accused of, of sexual misconduct, um, which which is always difficult to deal oh, with because, of course, his, but, well, his book, The Body Keeps the Score, is really a classic text. Um, and, yeah, we should think of trauma as a very bodily thing. It has a, a physiology of its own. It impacts on how the body acts and reacts um, as well. And, and I'm including in that then the mind as, as part of the physical body as well. You approach all your work from the perspective of a, of a Christian um, as well as a scholar. What difference does that make to your work that you identify as Christian? I feel like I have quite a tenuous relationship with Christianity. I do identify as a Christian. I identify as an Anglican, um, having been through various different kinds of churches as I've grown up. I find myself as a Christian in a place of mystery and uncertainty more and more. The, the, the difference it makes to me is that I want to ask really big questions and I have many days where I'm I'm not sure what difference this makes to me, but I also have this kind of underlying faith that kind of sustains me through that. Um, for me, I think that makes me a, a, a better theologian in that I think I'm able to ask questions that are very difficult without being too anxious about what impact that's going to have on me personally. I think I am able to see some of the problems and ask some of the hard questions in ways that I think open up really interesting avenues. So um, we need to talk about Mary. So she's an unmarried young woman in the ancient world and she becomes pregnant. So the idea that she was raped, um, where does that come from? Is it, it's not too wild a supposition, is it, given her position? Well, it's, it's not. And as I said, there's been uh, narratives around... Jesus's illegitimacy uh, since certainly a couple of hundred years after his birth, some some would argue since his birth itself. But we find the kind of thread of that tradition um, in in explicit terms in some elements of the Jewish tradition. So um, we get various different texts from the kind of late antiquity into the Middle Ages that talk about Mary or Miriam as one who is raped by Joseph Pandera, who may or may not be a Roman soldier. There's some stories, you know, that he uh, pretended to be her betrothed and tricked her into sleeping with him uh, or raped her. And those stories kind of carry through into the early Middle Ages. Um, We also see a similar story that's around illegitimacy, but not necessarily rape. Jesus is referred to in the Talmud as son of Pandera. And and there's this, there's a kind of insinuation that Mary wasn't married to Pandera, but rather just committed adultery with him. So it wasn't rape, but it does contribute to Jesus's illegitimacy. So we get that tradition all the way kind of through through Christian history, often told in quite anti-Christian Jewish texts that we should read as uh, polemical, obviously, um, you know, written for a particular purpose. But there are a number of scholars. Raymond Brown in the 1970s and Jane Schaeberg in the 1980s in particular, who argue that if we read the Matean and Lucan narratives, um, we see in there rumours of illegitimacy. And Schaeberg in particular goes on to talk about Mary as someone that was potentially raped. Do you think it's a legitimate reading of the 
uh, of the text in Matthew and Luke to make that supposition? Uh, it's a really interesting question. So Raymond Brown says that, well, or his kind of argument is, well, where do Matthew, where do the writers of Matthew and Luke get this virgin birth narrative from? Because it's a weird thing to invent. He links it back to this oral tradition and says they're writing in the context of these rumours of illegitimacy. Schaeber goes much further. It's a classic text. It's a kind of the, her book, The Illegitimacy of Jesus. You'd find it on a lot of undergraduate reading lists. And, it, and we're, still t- we're talking about it this morning. But it is, I think, a particular reading of the text that has to work very hard to make the argument that it wants to I mean, it's one make. thing to say and illegitimacy. Um, it is a different thing to argue rape. Yeah, and generally Schaeberg's work is considered to be interesting but lacking supporting evidence. So a lot of the connections that she's drawing, particularly out of the Luke narrative, but also the Matteo narrative, she does a lot of work on the the long genealogy of Jesus and the four women that are included in there is all kind of women that have had scandalous sexual relations. Um, It's inference rather than kind of explicit reading of the text. Well, yes, in the sense that I think it is it is useful for us to talk about it. I think I wouldn't necessarily agree with her reading of the text, although I would say she's a biblical scholar and I'm not. But I don't think it's a reading that's gained an awful lot of traction, although it's gained an awful lot of notoriety. Is it helpful? Um, yes, because it raises a whole load of really useful questions, theological questions around um, the incarnation, the annunciation, and it, it probably makes us ask the other question was, if she's not raped by a person, by a man, would we say she was raped by God? You see, that's such a challenging view, isn't it? I mean, there are lots of places in the Bible where God is portrayed as, as behaving in appalling ways, you know, including turning a blind eye to sexual violence. But the idea that Mary was raped by God is somehow um, just a step too far. I think it's a misreading of the text. And again, I would say that there are a number of scholars that do write in this kind of way, but it requires, again, I think, an awful lot of kind of supposition and slightly dubious inference in order to get there. So, um, Well, I suppose there's the whole a, question about, you know, sorry, what, what does it mean, the idea of being raped by God? And I suppose, you know, because obviously, literally, that couldn't happen. So... I suppose yeah. the question then is, what are people saying? And presumably mm. it all boils down to the issue of consent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we see that that idea of rape, in the uh, divine rape in the Annunciation story, we see it in two ways. So um, it is, in some cases, it is a literal um, comment on sexual violence. So there are various scholars, particularly Latter-day Saint scholars, that that would read the um the language around gabriel's entrance and gabriel's coming in as sexual language so there's a scholar called michael pope who reads the whole annunciation scene as one that's fraught with sexual violence and it but it relies on a whole range of passing out of of greek uh, language and drawing connections back into the hebrew bible that i think are rather tenuous often when when that kind of language is used what they're talking about is more of a kind of divine coercion so it's not a physical sexual rape, more like um, a lack of freedom of the of the will. And and you get Calvin talks about this when he talks about um, 
the Holy Spirit and as and divine the divine rape of the will, where you know God's Spirit um, overpowers us. He's not talking about Mary in particular, but that language is is around. But it's interesting because in all our discussions about sexual violence these days, you know, we are talking about coercive control. So there's a, there's an interesting question around how free do you think Mary was to say yes, and some some Catholic scholars have particularly argued that this is the reason for her immaculate conception in in the Catholic tradition, that Mary is born free from sin, which gives her a very specific way of consenting to God. Um, I find that argument really problematic because it would seem to suggest that every other person is not capable of giving consent, uh, either consent to God or genuine consent to others, and I don't believe that's true. Um, I'm not Catholic, um, although I have some sympathy with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. I'm probably a bit more Anglo-Catholic than um, than some of our listeners might be. But um, I, I, I think within all this, and this, this again is, is, a, is a key issue in contemporary discussions around rape and consent, is how much are we listening to the voice of the woman at the heart of the story? Because I think if we listen to Mary's voice, we find genuine consent. So Mary consents to what God is asking of her, but you nevertheless want to discuss Mary's experience as one of trauma. So talk to me about that. Yeah, so I it, um, this just came out of my PhD work uh, a few years ago and um, was I published it in Broken Bodies, which was my first book. And in that, I frame Mary as one who is a survivor of trauma, not a trauma that is rape, I think, for the reasons that I've outlined. But nonetheless, um, you know, at the very beginning of this, she talked about her as a young girl who's very suddenly pregnant. She's not married. It'll be scandal. And um, as I was going through the um, attributes of a, of a traumatic experience, I found myself thinking, well, this is what happens to Mary in the Annunciation Incarnation story. So uh, we usually talk about trauma happening in terms of three ruptures. So uh, a rupture of the body, a rupture in terms of time and a rupture in terms of language. Um, and so I was thinking about this as Mary suddenly becomes pregnant. Literally, her flesh is ruptured in order to make space for another in a way that is different to becoming pregnant after the sexual act. So she uh, she has this this rupturing of the body that takes place, a sudden pregnancy. Um talk about you know rupturing of time well pregnancy usually follows intercourse certainly at that time you know no IVF or anything like that um pregnancy follows intercourse so there's a disrupting of the timeline going on in this annunciation event and and the the fabric of time is kind of um torn apart by the eternal kind of entering into the temporal if you want to use some theological language around it and finally, the, the language is ruptured, her cognition is ruptured, her words literally fail. She says, well, how can this be? And as I was looking at that, and particularly then looking at what happens after the Annunciation event, I saw a lot of patterns within that text that made me think there's a lot of resonance here with the contemporary experience of trauma and also with uh, what I would call post-traumatic remaking, so how one puts oneself back together after these events. It's always difficult to read back. Of course, there's no, there's no medical diagnosis of trauma um, at the time that Mary experiences this, um, and I wouldn't want to impose that on her. Nonetheless, there's, there's some real resonances there. But that understanding of trauma as a rupture of, what did you say? Body, time and language. Body, time and language. 
that's part of a sort of um, expert understanding of what trauma is. Yeah, yeah. So I take those categories from uh, Judith Herman's work on trauma and recovery, um, as well as from from Bessel van der Kolk's work and and a number of other uh, psychologists and psychiatrists. Right, just tell me a little bit about, I mean, words fail her. Um, Just talk a little bit more about the rupture of understanding. Yeah, so I think um, she asks this question, how can this be? There's a lack of understanding. And in fact, Serene Jones talks about her as, Serene Jones is one of the trauma theologians whose work I really admire. She talks about um, as understanding Mary as a young girl who's immediately perplexed by what has happened to her. So there is the Mary's voice obviously is truncated in all of this. We only get parts of the story and the silences are, are really interesting to read. But um, Jones in particular reads that silence as a, a lack of understanding, a lack of cognition. Why should she understand? Actually, it takes a bit yeah. of time. I mean, to make her sense. world has been blown apart, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. In the way that somebody who experiences trauma, that the whole way in which they have understood mm. the world up until now is blown apart. Yeah, yeah. That's... So Maddie Horowitz talks about uh, trauma as being the thing that you can't integrate into your inner schemata yeah. of self. I think that's a really helpful thing. Suffering. Suffering, it's a helpful distinction, actually. Suffering is something that eventually can be integrated. And we might talk about, you know, some kind of spiritual growth that comes out of that potentially. But for trauma, it's at odds completely with what's going on in the inner, in the inner self, in the body. And therefore, it can't be integrated. And something, something additional has to happen in order for the, for the integration to, to take place. So we've got we've got the ruptures and now we come to what you call the remaking in the biblical narrative. Let's stick with the where we are with the biblical narrative. So talk me through the remaking. So I use the term post-traumatic remaking as a way of articulating what is required by the trauma survivor in the aftermath of trauma in order for them to move forward, in order for them to find some measure of flourishing. Um, And we find in here, again, a number of things that are required. um, And these are, this is not me, this is kind of trauma specialists saying these are the things that are required. So you have to be in a place of safety. You can't start the process of remaking if you're still in the place of being vulnerable to trauma. Um, And a key part of this is meaning making. So uh, trauma, trauma specialists would usually talk about constructing a narrative that makes sense of what's happened to you and having that narrative heard and witnessed and believed. It's really important. And the third element that, to that then is, is reconnecting with society. Um, and this is where I think Mary is a particularly interesting character because in the aftermath of the Annunciation, we see exactly this happen. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth. She leaves her home village and she goes to her cousin's uh, home. It's a place of safety. Actually, it's a place where she's away from prying eyes. It's a place where she can deal with those first few months of pregnancy on her own, perhaps the morning sickness or whatever, you know, whatever kind of symptoms she's experiencing. She gets to a place of safety. And then she constructs meaning. uh, And that's how I read the Magnificat as a construction of, of meaning it for a trauma survivor. So she puts her experience into context and she gives her experience some bigger meaning and it is, I, I certainly like to think of the Magnificat as, a, te- as a, a song that carries Mary forward through the, her whole life. So we only hear it once at the very beginning of the Lucan narrative, but perhaps it's a song that she sings for the rest of her life as a way of um, holding on to that faith of, around what, what has happened to her. Um, but of course, she, uh, she sings that 
Elizabeth witnesses it and hears it and validates it. She is believed and trusted, such an important thing uh, for people that have experienced trauma. Uh, but she doesn't stay there. She goes back. She reconnects. Um, and sometimes in that third, that third stage of post-traumatic remaking, people talk about a kind of survivor's gift. So sometimes, sometimes, not always, trauma survivors want to make some kind of gift out of their experience. So perhaps they become advocates or they set up a charity or something like that. Um, and I wonder if you see Mary's raising of Jesus as a survivor's gift. I find reading the Magnificat really powerful because I see it as a really radical text that's calling for a revolution and well I would love to think that that's what Mary teaches Jesus actually that he learns those radical principles from his mother yeah but it's also I mean what she's taught the the church down 2,000 years isn't it I mean that's where I would sort of see the um the gift yeah yeah Mm. and she she's overlooked I think that that's that's the sadness of this is that you know we see Mary in most traditions as a kind of fairly silent walk on part in the nativity she might get a nice little line lisped out on a child's uh, tongue at some point but we rarely talk about her I spent I spent 15 years in a, a charismatic evangelical tradition and I don't think we talked about Mary once in that time you choose not to use the word recovery you use the word remaking I'd like you to distinguish between the two yeah, thanks, Rosie, because uh, in my book, I do use the word recovery and um, and I've stopped using it now. So really, the work on the book was finished about four years ago, three or four years ago. And my kind of research has continued. And so in dialogue with a lot of people that work with trauma survivors, I have come to realise that trauma recovery and uh, trauma healing are not helpful terms and not accurate descriptions of what is actually taking place. So recovery has this notion of recovering, of going backwards, uh, back to where you were before. And that's certainly not what's, what is happening in, in the post-traumatic remaking. Um, and healing, I find, a, I find a difficult word to use because there's an implication there that everything that was wrong is kind of scrubbed out and that you don't need to kind of worry about it anymore, uh, particularly in the Christian context. But I'm not sure that's an accurate um description of what's happening here that there is a a shattering of the self and the self needs to be put together and the putting together will result in a in a a a new version of you one that will forever be traumatized but one that has um what's one that still has great potential for flourishing and for living a full life i suppose it's where you put the emphasis isn't it if you if you put the emphasis on um why you can't use the word recovery or healing, that could feel rather depressing. If you put the emphasis on the remaking and the potential going forward, that could be much more exciting and and be more than recovery. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think it's interesting as well that a number of trauma survivors who've written about their experience have chosen to use the language of remaking. So Susan Bryson, who uh, wrote very publicly, she's a philosophy professor who was raped on holiday in France. She wrote very publicly about her experience and called her book Aftermath, The Remaking of the Self. Um, And so I want to be led by the language that trauma survivors are using, and that's their particular choice rather than recovery. Do you know of trauma survivors who actually find in Mary a model for their remaking? Yeah, I do. Um, 
so I, I don't personally work firsthand with people, but I've certainly read a number of accounts and had a number of conversations with people that do work firsthand that have found uh, that particular reading of the Magnificat to be helpful, um, have found the idea that there even are trauma survivors in the Bible, that that, that might form a central part of our kind of understanding of the gospel to be comforting, to be useful, to offer prayers that might, it's, it's very difficult in the aftermath of trauma to articulate how you feel. And so finding other people's language that you can use to kind of start to unlock some of the ways in which you feel can be really helpful. Even just images of Mary, I've certainly heard of trauma survivor groups that have used images of Mary as part of their kind of meditation, as part of their kind of conversation starters around what what might her experience have been like and what might that say about our experiences as well. This Sunday is the Sunday where there'll be a lot of preaching about Mary in the churches and I wonder what you would be satisfied with hearing or what you would say yourself. I would I would want to offer a radical reading of the of the Magnificat. For me that's the central piece to understanding what is happening to Mary here. And it calls, I think, for for Christians today to witness that still, that the witnessing is ongoing here, that we hear her narrative. What I'm looking for in, in accounts of Mary is accounts of her as active, as involved in this, that her consent is real, and that what she says afterwards, you know, she calls for a revolution and she sees her actions as part of one that is overthrowing the rich, sending the sending the the full away and feeding the hungry. Uh, I don't think that story has ever been more necessary than it is than it is today. Mary, in in whatever way you want to understand her, either as a trauma survivor or, or as somebody that has encountered God, um, is motivated into action. She is not just praising and saying nice prayers, but she's it's punk, you know. She's calling for a revolution. I like to think of Mary as Pussy Riot of the first century. Oh, I like that. The... <laughs> Are there any carols about Mary that you actually like? Oh. Um, well, the one that I hate is that Mary Did You oh, Know I hate one. That. Why do you hate it? I hate it. I hate it because I think, oh, who on earth would think she didn't know? Of course she knew. Have you not read the Magnificat? Of course she knew. Oh. I react totally Why do you hate me? I think, of course she didn't know. Of course she didn't know. Oh, wow, OK. <laughs> if she had, she wouldn't have gone through Either way, it. I don't think we like the song. <laughs> oh, right, we hate that one. No, I suppose, we hate that one. Um, I suppose I have the um, the most highly favoured oh, yeah. lady, Carol, in yeah. my head. I was raised Catholic and they, we sang that every year and I have that in my head, but it's probably more... Um, it's probably more... Uh, nostalgia more than anything mm. um I can't say that there are any carols that I particularly like about Mary I don't um I, I like um I like the big stirring carols like my favorite carols joy to the world um because it's so happy and joyful and I think I love the Aretha Franklin version of it it's just amazing but I think a lot of carols um don't well, do they're Victorian, to the aren't joy. they? I mean I suppose yeah, the one that yeah. um, churches sing it all the year round but yeah. the the um the singing of the Magnificat in the sort of tell out my soul yeah. by Timothy Dudley Smith is a yeah. is a good one. Yeah, for and of course in the Anglican tradition, you know, we sing the we sing the Magnific or the choir sings the Magnificat even song every mm. day, which I always think is really interesting because it's sung in these beautiful choral voices, and they're so sweet and innocent, but but they're also singing this call for 
a radical overthrow of the systems. Karen, thank you very much for being my guest on the Shiloh podcast. And to all of you who are listening, if you haven't already, please subscribe to us at the Shiloh podcast, all one word, .captivate.fm or from wherever you get your podcast. And send us your feedback and tell us who you'd like to hear from in future episodes. You can also find out more about the Shiloh Project on our website, which is www.shilohproject.blog. And you can follow us on Twitter at Proj Shiloh. Happy Christmas, Karen. Happy Christmas, Happy Christmas everyone. Rosie. Thank you. See you next year. Bye.